All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Hey, a quick note. Dark Topic isn't dwindling away as it may seem. I've been going monthly for a little while here. Uh, but I've also been dropping exclusive episodes at tier 13 of 1159 Media's Patreon. Those are exclusive episodes of Dark Topic, which you can find a link to in the show notes. Or just search 1159 Media Patreon to sign up for tons of exclusive content, including the full Dark Topic. At the best $5 tier on Patreon, you get ex extra exclusive shows like Brutal, which is myself and Kent Chungus from True Crime Kent breaking down some of the worst true crime cases in true crime history. You also get Dark Calls, which is 911 Black Label. We have a podcast called 911 Calls with the Operator where we do additional episodes there as well. You also get uh, early releases of all of our shows and you receive a 25% discount in the store when it opens. At Tier 13, you get the full Dark Topic where, we, where I release a couple of additional episodes of Dark Topic each month. You also get benefits from the store and 12 O'Clock Shadows, which is an offering, an additional offering for myself, the operator, or Kent Chungus a few times a month. And uh, just lots of fun going on over there on Patreon uh, while we get everything figured out here for what's going to happen in the future publicly. We're trying to get more consistent. Ad revenue kind of dropped off for us for a while, so we went exclusive for you know, for the time being, uh, in order to pay the bills. But in closing, before this episode starts, Dark Topic is not dwindling away. It has still been pumping out when it comes to Patreon. For now, it's monthly here. My goal is to get it twice a month uh, as soon as I possibly can, and I'm ramping up for that in the coming months. Lots of promises, promises broken on my end, but I hope that uh, you'll understand and please enjoy this offering from Tier 13. To be clear, I drop 30% of everything I drop on the Full Dark Topic on Patreon. Uh, I drop one of every three here publicly. The rest you could find on 1159 Media's Patreon. Go check it out. 
Eyescut doors lock, stay paranoid. Big love. Enjoy. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? After all of the time I've spent envisioning what a victim of murder might experience, I can say for certain that I am almost completely full of shit. And the reason I'm certain is because I don't allow myself to get too physically uncomfortable. I can't imagine what it's like to be pushed past my pain threshold in any given area. Emotionally, I've been in some pretty dark places, some really uncomfortable spots, and managed to wriggle my way out unscathed with sheer will, experience. That's how I do this. That's how I at times can make it seem as though I know, have a good idea, how it is. Because I'm somewhat familiar with a piece of it. But in the end, you never truly know, will never truly get it, unless you are physically tortured without mercy by another human being. Rape. Must be so bad, must be so scary, so repulsive, so uncomfortable. For all of the rape I've covered, I've never really thought about it, written about it, too deeply. It's too disturbing. I don't understand the type capable of perpetrating it, and I can't clearly imagine what it would be like to suffer it. I don't know if any of us, other than those who have been a victim of rape or torture, can appreciate how awful these acts truly are. Torture, to me, is when somebody flushes the toilet while I'm showering. It's when I stretch my hamstrings in the morning and hold to a can of ten. I don't know what it's like to be at the mercy of a sexual sadist, and I've spent much of my life avoiding any situation that felt unusual enough to end with me being tied up. By a man, that is. Men can be brutal, vicious creatures, and for all the dreadful things I've learned of what they can do to women... It's the crimes against other men that quite often get really nasty, really quick, when rape is involved. And I've come across nothing much worse in this respect than what Robert Berdella did back in the 80s to earn the nickname of the Kansas City Butcher. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a Tier 13 exclusive, Bizarre Bob and his play toys. Late evening, March 29th, 1988. 22-year-old Christopher Bryson, a street-savvy male prostitute, is being hunted at a Kansas City bus station by a serial killer with at least a half a dozen murders behind him. 
young men who will never be seen again, outside their positions of death and torture and sweat-smeared Polaroids. Christopher may be young and the definition of vulnerable, but he's one thing as doomed delinquent predecessors were not. He's experienced with men who crave dominance. Being on the hunt himself, his guard is non-existent. And when the chubby man with the mustache, glasses, and all-around Jerry Garcia Grateful Dead thing going on drives slowly past him for the second time, Chris strides up to the seemingly sheepish John and whistles a little note that brings the crawling vehicle to a relieved halt. To Chris, this looks easy. The man doesn't give off a heavy vibe, but looks can be deceiving. And what Chris doesn't know is that Bob Berdella, like a spider, does everything by design. Born Robert Andrew Berdella Jr. on January 31st of 1947, Bizarre Bob, as he come to be known, had from the very start been different. Growing up in Cuyahoga County, Ohio, Bobby, a squat little boy with Coke bottle glasses, a minor heart issue, and a stutter to boot, did his best to fly under the radar. His father, Robert Sr., was a strict disciplinarian, and his mother, Alice, was a subservient Christian housewife who scuttled around, smoothing out creases caused by her husband's rough nature. When Bobby was seven, his brother Daniel was born, and much of the tenderness he'd been afforded was reallocated to soothe the new baby and ensure seniors stayed none too bothered. Bobby was left to his own devices. It was the 50s, so when he wasn't at school or home doing homework, he was told to get outside. A poor athlete and much more of a moth than a social butterfly, Bobby did his best to keep a low profile spending much of his time in the shadows studying insects and generally being weird. Neither school nor home life was of much respite, and from the outside looking in on the eventual serial killer's youth, there is no doubt that to the other kids, he would have fallen under the category of pansy. As a teenager in 1965... A string of events seemed to have conspired to shape who young Bob Berdella would become. First, his father died of a heart attack at the young age of 39. Not long after, his mother Alice found a new man, something that deeply disturbed Bob. How could she move on so quickly? How could such a momentous event be met with casual replacement of the former nucleus of their lives? It left Bob feeling empty, confused, angry, untethered. And this is when he began watching television, something his father had never allowed much of, and his mother was now indifferent to his intake of. The Collector, a novel published by John Fowles in May of 63, had been adapted into a film directed by William Wyler, who, interestingly enough to mention, chose the Collector script over The Sound of Music to direct. The film, which featured a troubled art student and collector of beauty, whose fascination with a young woman causes her to become his prized piece, would later be credited by more than one serial killer as the inspiration for their eventual evils incarnate. Charles Ng and Leonard Lake being the most infamous of the collector's unintended students.
A teenaged Robert Berdella would morph the fantasy of collecting a female to collecting males, as Bobby B was attuned to the D, something that on top of everything else that made Berdella different made him feel in opposition to the church, an enemy of it. Between the poor treatment by peers, the loss of his father, and consequently the loss of respect for his mother, and now the rejection of his inherited faith, a dark side of the young man turned to midnight black by his early adulthood. His discovered sexual preference did nothing to stem his feeling of being alien, and he soon began to embrace his status as a complete outcast. Not surprisingly, Berdella left home as soon as he completed high school. Following the collector playbook, he had applied to and been accepted by an art institute in Kansas City, as there wasn't much reason to stay in Ohio. Although he didn't quite understand that it had happened, Bob had been raped by an older employee of a store he'd been working at, a man who'd likely sensed Berdella's sexual nature and roughly introduced him to it. Ohio had been nothing but pain, and Bob hoped to start fresh in a new scene with a new attitude and a contrived identity. Gone was the insecure, chubby, bespectacled pansy with a stutter. Here was the flamboyant eccentric with a fearless approach to art and its conceptualization. Here was a product of social rejection, sexual confusion, and dark desire manifest by years of fantasy, born in a mind closely controlled by one who felt none in reality. It didn't go well. Bob's idea of art was a little far out. We've all heard of budding cereals cutting their teeth by torturing animals to death, but Bob, ever the late bloomer and wannabe trendsetter, chose to begin this practice in his 20s, publicly. His stint as an art student came to an abrupt end when he chose to openly kill a duck by decapitating it then throwing it into a pot. Now, one may be inclined to say that art comes in many forms, that genius breaks barriers, but more often than not, the practice of using shock as a tool in art is less about a greater meaning man and more about disguising the artist's shortcomings. It's cheap and lazy. Trust me, I know firsthand how contrived shock can devalue a project. Bob had been bankrolling this whole misadventure by selling methamphetamines to fellow students, so was quickly ushered back onto the streets where he engraved himself in the gay scene, the drug scene, as a guy who could get you just about anything. The little boy who couldn't make any friends was a distant iteration of this Bob Berdella. In Kansas City, he was becoming exactly what he wanted to be, an outcast with the power to overcast each and every situation he saw fit to rule over. Fueled by alcohol, drugs, and a mind starved to work its manipulative nature on those who failed to see him coming, Bob became an underground king, a known entity, a charming, larger-than-life character with screws so stubbornly loose that he made falling apart look completely natural. Hiding before them in plain sight was a monster, and everyone who crossed its path took for granted what bizarre Bob was, a ticking time bomb destined to take everything much too far and getting away with it because, well, that was just Bob. Sure, he'll blow up on occasion, but he picks up the pieces, cleans up his mess, no muss, no fuss, that's just Bob. And besides, he takes care of his people. His people, runaways, drug addicts, misfits. Bob had plenty to choose from under the tent of his oddity store, 
Bob's Bizarre Bazaar. After school, Bob had dabbled in the culinary world, becoming a respected chef and worked in restaurants around the city. In this new career, he continued with drug sales and enjoyed a wide variety of perks, meeting eccentric, strange, yet successful people such as himself. And after a few years of fascination with collecting art and oddities from around the world through his contacts, Bob, the collector, began setting up shop at flea markets to sell his wares full-time. Bob's Bizarre Bazaar was born. You see, one thing about Bob was that he'd get things done. If he set his scheming, monomaniacal mind to a task, it would soon be completed. More than this, you could be guaranteed it would be done in a way you'd never imagine it to be, and always with multiple benefits, bleeding out to Bob through some siphoning contraption built in during the ever-complicated path to fruition. He was a sly hustler, a mean old dog disguised as a wayward pup, and though he took care to clean up his mess, he was a slovenly beast. But again, to drive this home, Bob knew how to hide in plain sight. Sure, he was dirty, but he surrounded himself with pure filth. A functioning alcoholic, no doubt, in agreement with the naughty junkies that flanked him. Yes, yes, of course, he was a sex-crazed sadist. But in the 70s gay scene, that's what society thought the whole thing was anyways. A bunch of HIV-riddled homos injecting heroin into each other's butts at the bathhouse. Bob not only fit in. He stood out as one of the good ones, an entrepreneur, an aspiring philanthropist. By his mid-thirties, he and his home in Hyde Park at 4315 Charlotte Street was considered one of his neighborhood's bright spots, a place you could crash and get a meal from Bizarre Bob, the guy who sold skulls and antiquities, along with a bag of whatever else you might need, for what ailed you. And when the young men started to disappear... Almost everyone figured Bob had something to do with it, that he probably killed them and sold their skeletons through the black market, put their brains in a jar of formaldehyde and kept them over his bed. Bob was crazy enough. Everyone agreed. Everyone kind of knew. And in the end, just as had always been the case with Bob Berdella, nobody really cared enough to ask. By design, like a spider, he made everything seem accidental that you just so happened to become tangled up here, incapacitated, while he just so happened to be hanging out nearby. Fingers on the strings. Hold still. Now. Hold still. This won't hurt a bit. The male prostitute from the start of this story, the sex worker, if you prefer, Chris Bryson, isn't sure what had happened. They'd gone back to Bob's house, had some drinks, then Bob had suggested they go upstairs to get away from his three chow-chows who wouldn't shut the fuck up. Who has three of those things? An eccentric gay man who advertises himself as having poison in his brain, that's who. Bob had shown him a business card, and that's what it had said, right on it. Bob Berdella, of Bob's Bizarre Bazaar, born with a poison in his brain. Chris realizes he's been stripped naked that he's been tied to a bed and gagged with, what is this, piano wire? It's cutting into his mouth and cheeks. Then Bob enters the room holding a box. He sits on Christopher's chest like a little boy showing an adult his baseball cards and begins to flash Polaroids of young men in different states of torture, rape, and death. 
This can't be real. Chris swoons and feels the weight lift from his torso, then something is pinching him, stinging him. He jolts back to reality and stares helplessly into his captor's eyes and sees the spider there. Multiple. He has multiple eyes. One pops and he realizes they're not eyes, not, not eyes at all, they're bubbles. Bubbles in the froth coming from his own mouth, reflected in Berdella's thick lenses. His fat, sweaty face hovering above Chris's own as the electricity bites through the teeth of the alligator clips. How many had come before him? Many, Bob tells him, shows him. His broken play toys. That's what Bob calls them, the dead boyish men in the Polaroids. They were his play toys, until he broke them. Are you going to break too, Chris? Or are you going to be a good boy? He'll be a good boy. Some of the men in the photos were dead, one hanging from a basement rafter by his ankles, blood draining from a gash in his throat into a vat. Yeah, yeah, oh sure, he could be a good boy. Bob Berdella grins, droplets of sweat rolling off his chubby cheeks as he does so. Good. Then he shoves his fist up the young man's ass. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Today. All right, everybody. Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here in I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step -step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. 
it caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service. So I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. He killed one this way, he tells Chris. Had torn the guy's guts loose. What a stench. Christopher endures the rape, the torture by electrocution. There'd been a man in one of the photos who looked like a mannequin in a horror house. Shirtless, hands strapped behind his back, a back that was arched over a metal bar. Stoops was his name. Todd Stoops. Oh, yeah, Stoops, Berdella recalls. Probably his favorite. Smart, a little hustling chicken hawk like Chris. Ah, Stoops. He lasted two weeks, a record at the time. He'd actually suspected Berdella of being a killer. He was the one who died from the fisting, in fact, the one who Berdella had first injected with Drano in the larynx in an attempt to fuck up his voice box. Chris is screaming, and then he feels the Drano and the needle go into his own neck. The rape is so violent. Berdella uses vegetables when he's no longer able to get an erection. Carrots, cucumbers. He documents all of this, using some simplistic coding in a notebook, in this instance, he's writing carrot, F, cucumber, F, earlier, fist, F. I'll leave you to crack that yourself. He injects the young man with antibiotics, hoping to keep him alive longer, then some more Drano. Chris is under the control of a seasoned torturer at this point. Bob had at least six of these playdates under his belt by now, a skull buried in the yard, one downstairs, they're about all that he's kept as keepsakes. He is a collector. But most of the previous are rotting in the landfill, conveniently carted away with the trash after he bled them, dismantled them, and slowly brought them out in bags mixed with household waste to be picked up by the unsuspecting garbage man. Garbage men for the garbage man. <laughs> what a gay old time Bobby B was having in this year of 88. The fun, it seemed, would never end. Nobody gave a shit about a disappeared gay man, a disappeared prostitute, a disappeared junkie. They couldn't care less. He has a list of names. Just kids, really. All about Chris, his current captive's age. His current captive. <laughs> oh, Bradella slams the boy with another 7,000 volt jolt directly to his testicles. He has perfected this. Tailored it to suit his discerning tastes. Cocking squeezed into the ears to deafen them. Drano to the throat to silence them. Drano to the eyes to blind them. They never know when he's coming. Six, seven, eight times a day, he skitters upstairs to rape and experiment on his web-to-the-bed subject. There seemed to always be a new one, a new flavor, an exquisite new brand of pain to squeeze free. Sometimes he forgets the names, but he has a list of them. And he regales Chris Bryson with the stories of how each of his previous play toys came to be broken. First, there'd been Jerry Hal, age 20, summer, 84. He puked against the gag and choked a couple days in. A shame, a complete waste, but when at first you don't succeed, Robert Sheldon was next, 18 years old. 
He'd lasted three full days and would have lasted longer if the roof repair guy hadn't come. Bob had forgotten about the appointment, so he told the man to wait a minute outside while he went upstairs and suffocated the teenager with a plastic bag. Damn shame, too. He'd been fun. A lot of needlework with that one, shoving them into his fingertips. Boy, he couldn't stand it. His head was in a closet downstairs. Maybe I'll show you. Who was next? Oh, yeah, Mark. Mark Wallace, age 20. Summer, 85. He'd been hiding from the rain in the tool shed out back. I called him in. He was a junkie, so I offered him a needle. Didn't even ask me what was in it. It was chlorpromazine. I put him out. Most of you have been simple enough to tranquilize. Fucking junkies will inject puddle water just to feel something squeeze into them. Mark was dead by seven the next night. I stuck too many syringes into him, I guess. That Drano was no bueno for the heart, apparently. You gotta watch your heart. Here's a picture of him. See? See how many fucking needles he's got hanging out of his back like a porcupine? But that's what life's all about. We live. We learn. James Ferris was next, 20 years old, in September of 85. He was a friend. Well, a user, but none of you fucking kids know the difference. He'd just kind of show up, convenient-like. You all just kind of show up. Except you, Chris. I chose you, so this is a little bit special. I overdid it with the sedatives with him as well. Wait, here's a photo of him. Shit. Wait. Wait, he was the porcupine. I had them all mixed up here. So many fucking photos. I was a little overexcited with the electricity, too, by the looks of it. Ugh. Oh, that reminds me. Here. Berdella removes the alligator clips from Chris's shoulders and testicles, then sits back on his bare chest and rifles through more Polaroids. Ah, Stoops, Todd Stoops, we talked about him already, 21 years old, this was why, summer, 86. I told you a bit about Stoops already, two weeks of fun. That's when I got good, electrocuted Stoops right in the eyes. Did I tell you that? Boy, he didn't like that, I like that, do you like that? Do you think you'd like that, Chris? What a nightmare. But as I reenact what I imagine Bob Berdella's bedside manner to have been, and imagining drawn from a handful of interviews, newspaper clips, podcasts, and books, I'm starting to feel a little ill. I just had to go in and lay down, face down, in my living room, just to get back here to be able to finish this off. These young men were more than just the junkies that Berdella claimed them to be. They may have not even been that at all. In most cases, Bob's the only one who claimed they were. In truth, drug use aside, they were just lost kids. Men, but just recently each of them before their brutal deaths would have been considered a kid. And for those of us who didn't grow up with firm direction from parental figures, we know that when you're 18, 19, 20, and looking for a place to stay, looking for a friend, a shoulder to lean on, you're basically up for grabs to a predator. A spider, like Bizarre Bob. Larry Pearson, age 20, injected July 9th of 87. The last of the previous victims Bob paraded photos of past the bulging eyes of Chris Bryson was being groomed by Berdella not as a victim but as his protege. Bob had met the young man at his Bizarre Bazaar and took a liking to Larry. Larry was into witchcraft, into collecting, like Bob had been, and he took Larry under his wing, teaching him the business, giving him a place to stay, 
feeding him booze while filling his head with all the wacky wisdoms Bob had collected along his life's path. He hadn't planned on making Larry a play toy until Larry had made an offhanded remark about robbing men. Gay men. How easy it was. Anne unwittingly recalibrated Bob's intentions from becoming Larry's master of macabre to becoming his macabre master. This one had been a true work of art. And though Berdella had high hopes for Chris, who was coming along just splendidly, by the way, Larry had been an absolute pleasure to play with. It began the same way as it always did. He doped the kid with a tranquilizer. Though with his current captive, Berdella had opted to use a metal bar to the back of the head as they headed upstairs to do business. Because Larry had upset him, the urge to torture predominated his usual setup for rape on the upstairs bed. Bob guided the groggy young man to the basement where he strung his wrist to a rafter. He stripped him, roughly fondled his new play toy a little, took a few notes while the dogs barked upstairs, notes including things like Fing F, Fing standing for finger. I think we can safely rule out Berdella was a Zodiac killer. He used Fing F and BF quite a lot. B maybe standing for Bob or Butt or Bum, Bumfuck. Larry was straight as an arrow, but Bob had him pretty bent into shape before the time the sedative began wearing off. To bring Larry fully to attention, Bob hooked him up to the Transformer and made the homophobic heathen dance. Then, once he made it known that this was how it was going to be, Berdella made Larry consciously do things he'd never imagined he'd ever have to do. Suck a man's dick, for one. Take a man's dick in his ass. That's number two in this business. But numbers three, four, five, six, etc. There's no way he saw those coming. Larry could take it. He showed incredible resilience. Incredible mental strength. He attempted to manipulate Bob by pretending to enjoy it. He accomplished what all the others had been unable to do. That is, refraining from screaming or fighting while being raped, tortured, and injected. Larry lasted six weeks, eventually graduating to the upstairs bedroom where he finally realized that all of his compliance had only got him into a bed to be further sexually tortured and experimented with. His ears full of cock, cocking that is, his mouth full of cock, penis that is, his eyes blurred from the Drano and injections, his body emaciated from the lack of food and water. Berdella waited patiently for his play toy to snap and when it finally realized that all of its good behavior was only to be rewarded with an increase in torture, Larry in fact broke and lashed out one night when Bob snuck up beside his deaf mute form, his skin and bones body lashed to the bed with piano wire that cut through his skin. He showed resistance as Bob began forcing fellatio for maybe the hundredth time, that's not an exaggeration, this is six weeks, but Larry with the last of his strength bit down in this situation and as a result was bludgeoned about the head, then suffocated with a plastic bag. Boom. Nice. Thanks. Chris Bryson listens closely. Bob had been sitting on his chest throughout this entire confession and gets up off him now, to his relief. Then Bob starts swabbing Chris's eyes with ammonia, rubbing alcohol, a new trick, in an attempt to blind. Then he's raping him again. Then the vegetables and the fingers and the fist and at some point it all ends, at some point he blacks out, blind from the swabbing, deaf from the cocking, 
hoarse from the Drano injections to his voice box and unfathomably sore from the sodomy. It's on the morning of that first night as he wakes to find himself in a room with a TV blasting the drown at his screams that he promises himself that he won't be an upgrade of the last man. That he'll do what he has to do to escape. Bobby is getting sloppy. He likes the new kid. He likes that he seems genuine. The others were just rats. Rats will do anything to save their own skin. A rat will chew through their own throat in an attempt to get away. A rat will die lying. But this kid, he might be the one. He might be the perfect play toy. Something Bob could dominate and hold for months without it resisting. Something he wouldn't have to tie up to keep still. Something that he can own. The ultimate collector's piece. A living, breathing... Ah, who is he kidding? They all break in the end, snap and fall apart in his hands like popsicle stick men. But he tries anyways. For the first time, Bob gives his captive a little power. On the third day, he unties Chris's hands, then rests them in his lap. Then he gives Chris the remote for the television and leaves him a cigarette and a pack of matches. Then, without saying a word, Bob Berdella leaves. Christopher Bryson sits in silence, a dog collar around his neck, anus bleeding from the last rape, balls throbbing from the recent electrocution, and fights against the slim hope for eventual mercy and release that the cigarette seems to signify. It's tempting to ride this out. Then he remembers the photographs, the stories of the previous, the promise he made himself, and he uses the remote to slowly turn down the blaring television. Could it be? Did Bob leave? Is this a test? It is. And Chris finds the courage to fail it. He drops the remote and reaches for the matches. His wrists and ankles are bound by a rope, not piano wire as some of the previous men. He'd use it on his mouth, but not on his wrists or ankles. Berdella is testing his own capabilities in establishing dominance over a victim. He's been doing this for half a decade and is bored. Leaving the house is a thrill. Coming home to find his captive watching TV in a contented clad of cigarette smoke is arousing. The thrill is gone. That's what this is about. And Chris has seen through it. He burns the ropes carefully with each match until he's loose. Then, not wanting to risk going through the house, he breaks the bedside window and after a few moments hesitation, with the sounds of the chow chows barking in his recently uncocked ears, he leaps from the window rope trailing from his naked form, and plummets two stories to the ground where he breaks his foot, smashes his hands and knees badly, but manages to get up and go running into the street. A meter maid spots the bloodied and bruised and burnt young man with the broken bindings, dog collar, and swollen shut face approaching. He yells for someone to call the police, and someone does, though nobody invites Chris to take shelter inside their home. To be fair, he's a horror movie scene come to life. And neighbors shout for the babbling mess of a man to stay away from their doors, to wait in the street. Police are coming. Chris is concerned Bob will come first, and is staggering up the block and across lawns when help finally arrives in the form of flashing lights. Christopher collapses, and the nightmare mercifully ends. 
They stake out the house, and Bob Bradella is soon arrested when he returns home to his house of horrors. The home is descended upon by investigators. They have only 24 hours to figure out what to charge him with before they have to release him. They are in a backwards predicament of having to find the victims of a serial killer rather than the serial killer of victims. But the house is a petri dish of murder evidence. Bob was a slob, yes, but a collector above all else. They discover over 300 Polaroids depicting the same torture Chris Bryson claimed Bob had inflicted upon him and on the previous victims in the photos. They find his skull, a drain clogged with hair and blood, instruments of torture like the alligator clips, teeth rusted with gore. It's a slaughterhouse for men. And like Bizarre Bob said following his eventual confession that helped him avoid the death penalty, they should have seen it sooner, but they hadn't cared to look. It's their fault, not his. They could have scared him off early, but they didn't care. Bizarre Bob twisted the narrative to somehow make himself seem as much a victim as his victims, claiming that if he hadn't felt like he and the other men from the area were worthless, then maybe he would have thought twice about becoming a serial killer. Quote, they died in a convenient neighborhood. The police knew what was going on. Bob Berdella died of a heart attack four years into his sentence at the age of 42. He had complained previous to this that the prison was denying him his heart medication. The entire saga was seen as one big dirty joke to most, joking on the radio, joking in the neighborhoods, just men, fags, gives a fuck. They asked for it. It was big and dirty, all right, and most certainly a joke that a clumsy, plump little recluse isn't that a spider is named a recluse? Is that like a brown recluse? A recluse like Bizarre Bob could get away with it in plain sight for so long. But hey, it was the 80s. I find myself saying that a lot. It was the 70s, man. It was the 80s, man. I think it would do each of us good to remember that history repeats itself. The 80s will come again. The 80s may already be here. That lack of looking out. This fucking virus or this warning shot that came through certainly showed that each of us goes scurrying into our own corners when something horrible begins to happen around us. We need to keep a close eye on each other. We need to keep a close eye on who the bizarre bobs are in our neighborhoods. We need to get rid of this apathy. It's a poison. We need to keep a close eye on our kids and the kids of others who choose not to watch, who choose just to let them go, who choose just to let them be. Let them toughen up on their own. Let them figure it out for themselves. We need to watch who they spend time with. For all of the unspeakable things that we humans are capable of, unfortunately, have not yet been spoken. We think we've seen it all, but we haven't. There are spiders out there, stringing up webs and waiting patiently to spin the naive into a cocoon and slowly drain their lives away at their leisure, at their pleasure. Hello, I'm Lauren. And I'm Michael. And we're we're True Crime Crime Guys. What are you doing? Oh, I thought we were doing that thing where we said the same thing at the same time. 
Since when do we talk over each other? Uh, like every episode for the last four and a half years. Fair enough. We've also been known to add a little bit of levity and bring new perspectives on history's most infamous killers, such as Gacy, Ramirez, BTK, and many others, as well as a healthy dose of lesser-known cases, all while being the oldest true crime podcast you've never heard of. Not sure that's a good thing. Debatable. I'm in Las Vegas. And I'm in North Carolina. That doesn't stop us from getting together every week to discuss our favorite topic, Moida. I also use my background as a musician to make an original intro song for almost every episode. Like this one about Jody Arias. Jody, Jody, bitch, you're the scariest. So if you like true crime, obviously you do if you're listening to this, and you don't mind a little bit of banter mixed in, give us a listen. Serial killers would not be idolized in the making of this podcast. Although many of them have physical and mental trauma in their backgrounds that explain some of their erratic behavior, they are, generally speaking, mostly narcissistic scumbags. We prefer to spend the majority of the time discussing how pathetic they are.